Let's talk about tropes. Trope is probably one of those words you've heard before, but might struggle to explain if you were put on the spot. While technically meaning a word or expression used in a figurative sense, the word trope is more commonly used today to describe the storytelling devices and conventions we encounter all the time in our favorite books, comics, shows, and films. Whether it's the bad guy with the heart of gold or good twin, bad twin, enemies who become lovers, or scrappy team of misfits pulls it together to pull it all off, tropes are all around and have been for as long as life's been giving us stories to tell. One of the most colorfully named tropes is an orgy of evidence. Yeah, that name alone is pretty unforgettable. And that's good, because I want you to hold on to that one. Slightly naughty word and all. Because believe it or not, that trope with the kind of sort of naughty name with the words you probably don't hear that much on radio turned out to be the key to unlocking the mystery of Staff Sergeant Clark's accident and the absolute insanity and injustice after injustice that followed. Orgy of Evidence. Remember that. This is Intersections, a special limited presentation of The Brink with Benjamin Bryant and the BZMP. Exploring the aftermath of the night of shock tragedy took away one woman's ability to tell her own story and gave others the opening to revise and rewrite a very different one for her. I'm Benjamin Bryant. It was a warm night in May, and the sun hadn't even gone down yet. But the Friday night party was already getting started at Ichiban, a local nightclub in downtown Watertown, New York. You know the one, the one where the Rough Rider Motorcycle Club hangs out? Yeah, that one. Well, right after 8 p.m., this female biker comes out of the club with a guy. And that guy is totally wearing Rough Rider colors, by the way, and starts up her bike. And that bike? It's loud, clearly modified, right? And Officer Cummings, a cop parked a few hundred feet away from the club, he hears her coming down the street even before he can see her. And she's clearly speeding. Officer Cummings, of course, does what any policeman would do and throws on the siren and the lights. And that's when that woman, full well seeing the lights and recognizing that cop, decides to ignore him. And by ignore him, I mean she gives him the metaphorical whatever man and immediately takes that bike up to almost 100 miles an hour. Not only she's only got a tiny little stretch of road and a hard ride onto a small bridge from losing that cop on her tail. Well, her bike might be fast, but clearly that lady didn't plan on the unmarked cop car being faster. Because in no time, Officer Cummings has pulled out of the parking lot, made the hard left turn onto the main road, covered all the distance she drove, made the second turn onto the bridge, and is caught up with her fast enough to see her force one car onto the shoulder and another into oncoming traffic before she's even gotten over that short bridge. But it gets crazier. That biker, she clears that small bridge in no time, takes that bike to speeds above triple digits, loses Officer Cummings, but is watched by cop after cop after cop 
as she shoots by at insane speeds and handles not one, but two 90 degree or tighter turns without slowing down even once. I mean, this woman is all about evading the police and it's not until she crosses back into town and heads into a residential neighborhood that she even slows down a little. I mean, who knows how much, but police reconstruction says 70 to 100 miles per hour. And I'll tell you what, that ain't the speed limit. But that's when it catches up with her. While she's too busy checking behind her to see if the police have caught up, she doesn't notice a car pulled over to the side of the road in front of her. When she finally sees it, it's too late to do anything but lay that bike down just like in the movies. But it's no use. The bike, the woman, Staff Sergeant Anna Clark slams into the back of that car at 70 miles an hour. Game over. If that sounded a little sensational, more like a Hollywood blockbuster than an attempted police stop for speeding in upstate New York, it's because that's exactly how the details of Anna Clark's police chase and crash come off when you first read them in the Army Investigating Officer's Report. Between the little details the biker club, the cars forced into oncoming traffic, the bike laid down in the final moments too little too late, and the core facts of the chase, namely the near-constant triple-digit speeds. You find yourself reading with your mouth hanging open, both strangely impressed at Anna's near-stunt-rider-level skill with the motorcycle and truly horrified at the open disrespect shown to law enforcement and the lack of consideration for anyone's safety, including her own. This was a soldier? To put it simply, when we were done reading that report, we were shaken. But not as shaken as we were when we discovered how much of it wasn't even true. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I should take you back to where we left you last time, moments after we'd finished meeting with Anna's family, leaving our mother's house with an armful of reports, records, and documents, having just heard their side of this incredible story. Whew. What are you thinking? No, I don't know. I think we need to know more. I know right now I'm feeling particularly sympathetic towards her, and that makes sense, because we've just been face-to-face -face with her. We got to know her family. Yeah, and we can see firsthand what their decision did to them. But that doesn't mean the decision is wrong. On one hand, it sounds like she was a great soldier and a good person. But on the other hand, sometimes good people make bad choices. What do we do next? Well, we've got his report, and we've got all the other information she gave us. So I think we just head back to the hotel and start there. Okay. Okay, you ready? Yeah, I think so. But do you get this whole line of duty thing? I mean, I thought I got it, but is it a criminal investigation, an HR thing? Super confusing. If you go to Google, pull up um, Army Regulation 600-8-4. That's probably the best place to start. Line of duty, or LOD, isn't exactly a common concept in the civilian world. And it can be confusing, even for military folks. 
Unless you have a reason to actively read the 30 pages of definitions, instructions, and appendices found in Army Regulation 600-8-4, a passing familiarity for most is, as they say, good enough for government work. But when the ins and outs of LOD matter, they really matter. So let me explain. Or rather, let me take you to an apartment party taking place just off post where Private Tommy and his fellow soldiers are kicking back after a long week. Hey, I didn't know you were here. Private Tommy's unit has just gotten back from the field, and they are ready to relax. Music's on, drinks are in hand, and the gaming system is fired up. Private Tommy's watching the festivities, and well, I'm not actually sure what he's doing right now. What? I'm dancing. Suddenly, something outside catches Private Tommy's eye. So he heads over and onto the balcony for a closer look. But just as he's stretching out over the ledge, strained against the guardrail to get a good view, Private Tommy realizes something's gone terribly wrong. Oh no! Private Tommy goes tumbling three stories to the ground. And from the looks of things, it's not just the balcony guardrail that's broken. Thankfully, Private Tommy, as a soldier in the United States Army, has access to comprehensive healthcare benefits a steady paycheck while he's recovering, support while he's unable to work, and a safety net if his injuries leave him unable to ever return to his job in the Army. Yeah. That is, of course, unless the LOD investigation into his accident finds the fall was his own fault. Due to a reckless disregard for his own safety and maybe exacerbated by what was in that drink in his hand, if that happens, Private Tommy is S-O-L. Wait, what? Basically, when a service member is on active duty status, they're pretty much always on call, and thus on duty 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, with only a few exceptions. Because of this, any injury, disease, or death to occur while on duty is considered in the line of duty. Of course, this includes the obvious, combat or training-related injuries and deaths and service-connected illnesses. But for the purposes of LOD determination, It also encompasses most injuries, illnesses, and deaths that take place while on active service, even accidents. But as Private Tommy may soon learn, there's one big exception. An injury, disease, or death caused by the service member's own wrongdoing, egregious or intentional misconduct, willful or reckless disregard for their own safety, or that occurs while they're high or intoxicated, is generally not considered in the line of duty. But here's where it gets complicated. See, if Private Tommy was drunk or high or completely disregarded reasonable standards of safety to get a better look at the events below, then he's not in the line of duty. But if the balcony was faultily constructed and the guardrail broke when it wasn't supposed to, then that stuff really wouldn't matter. He's in the line of duty. Now, what if the issue was a known one and Private Tommy ignored the sign that said, stay off the rail? He's not in the line of duty. But what if it was known and no one put up a sign? He's back in. Now, what if Private Tommy had had a recent traumatic brain injury and had problems with depth perception? What if he'd been leaning over the rail to warn someone against impending danger? What if he was on medicine and dizziness was a side effect? What if he'd been warned to stay away from heights because he was on that medicine? What if Private Tommy had risked his own life because he was depressed, suicidal, and no longer cared about his own well-being. What if? 
See, every one of those scenarios would merit different considerations and potentially different outcomes when it came to determining whether Private Tommy was in the line of duty. All for the same accident. And if more than one turned out to be true, different circumstances could potentially exacerbate or cancel out the effect of the others in figuring out the final determination. It's all there in black and white for the person designated by the unit commander to conduct the line of duty investigation. The investigating officer, or I.O., is rarely a trained investigator, nor even a particularly senior or experienced officer. Theoretically, this shouldn't be a problem. The commander's appointing memo and the appropriate military regulation both provide a roadmap and effective checklist of questions to be answered, evidence to be gathered, and procedures to follow. Once the I.O. completes their investigation, he or she makes a determination as to whether the service member was in or out of the line of duty. At that point, the I.O.'s full investigative report and LOD determination are checked for thoroughness and compliance with the regulations by the appointing commander and a military lawyer, and both must validate and sign off on the I.O.'s work before a final determination is made and sent upward to be reviewed and processed. It's not a criminal investigation. And the regulations make clear it's not even a legal one. So it is more akin to an incredibly thorough HR review. But it's a careful and conscientious one. And this was the process that was already complete when we opened up the report of Staff Sergeant Clark's I.O., Captain Dustin Vosberg, to read his account of Anna's exploits. One's clearly more suited to the events in a Fast and Furious film than a responsible interaction with police. Anna's behavior that night had been investigated under this process, under these rules, and the I.O.'s report had been reviewed and validated by senior military officers, legal experts, and even a medical reviewer by that point. And yet Tommy and I could still not shake the sense that something was wrong. No matter how many times we read Captain Vosberg's report or reviewed the exhibits he attached, we couldn't get past one simple fact. We didn't buy it. You heard the details of the chase, the descriptions of Anna's behavior that night. Every single thing he included in his report was damning. And that's when it hit us. It wasn't what was in the report that was the problem. It's what wasn't there and should have been. Nearly two decades ago, director Steven Spielberg took audiences to the year 2054 in the sci-fi thriller Minority Report. The film, a loose adaptation of author Philip K. Dick's 1956 similarly named short story, starred Tom Cruise as a man who, among other things, finds himself set up for a crime he would never actually commit. When a detective on the case, played by Colin Farrell, is confronted with the overwhelmingly neat evidence tying Cruz's character to the crime, audiences are given a rare example of a trope both deployed and explicitly referenced in a story. This would be your first actual murder scene. Yeah, I worked homicide before I went federal. This is what we'd call an orgy of evidence. No many orgies I had as a homicide cop, Gordon. How many? None. Farrell's Detective Whitwer is disturbed by the unusually clean and neatly arranged direction in which the evidence points. Photographs are quite literally laid out for his review at the crime scene. 
because he knows how rare the chances of that actually happening are. Another example of the trope explicitly in play is found among the many twists and turns of Paul Cornell's 2016 entry in his Shadow Police series, Who Killed Sherlock Holmes? All those clues at the murder scene, they all have to mean something, don't they? In that supernatural tale, the villain's use of an orgy of evidence is toward an altogether different end. I'm not sure, but I think maybe most of them were put there deliberately to distract us from looking for what wasn't there. An orgy of evidence. That's what my old boss used to call a crime scene like that, a room that had too much in it. As Tommy and I sat in our hotel room that day, reviewing the investigative report into Anna Clark's accident, we realized it was Vosberg's own orgy of evidence that fueled our discomfort with his findings. According to Captain Vosberg, Anna's case was obvious, with exclusively clear and overwhelming evidence pointing to only one possible conclusion. His report describes a sequence of events so fantastic and unambiguous, it feels just like a summer blockbuster. And it depicts an investigation so uncomplicated, he managed to complete it without encountering a single question, inconsistency, mitigating factor, or alternate possibility of any significance along the way. It was an orgy of evidence, all right. And while we had nothing to indicate that it was presented with malice, it was hard not to wonder what all of that overwhelming evidence, seemingly so perfectly arranged to point one direction and one direction only, might actually be distracting us from seeing. The thing that gets me is it's so easy to get caught up in this. That's what I'm talking about. It's like a movie. It's got all the twists and turns up until the big moment. And like a movie, it's kind of afterwards that you start to see all the plot holes. Like citations? I mean, he literally doesn't cite a single source for any of this. Well, he's got that memo. Yeah, but it's like we were saying earlier. It's so short, and it's basically some notes of what he heard when he was talking to the police. He doesn't tell us where the information came from, who said it, or even how credible they are. You know, that's a really good point, because I'm sitting here looking at the appointing memo right now, and it says he has to do all of that. In fact, it says he's only allowed to use a memo in lieu of a witness statement if he can explain why he couldn't get one. Does it say anything else about what he's supposed to do? Because I've got the report right here. Um, in addition to saying he has to cite everything that he finds with exhibits, so good catch there, uh, it says he has to speak to every available witness. Which he doesn't. And it says it needs to include information about the accident site, terrain, photos, maps, anything to help people reading this report to understand what went on. Nope, none of that here either. But what does that mean? Does it mean he's like a crappy report writer, or does it mean that his commanders or the legal reviewers were very lax on enforcing the standards? Or does this much missing mean that there are things missing? You know what I mean? Well, I can tell you one thing that's missing. In this memo, he says right here, they gave him a copy of the media statement. But he doesn't cite it. He sure as heck doesn't include it in his references. You know, that's strange. Because it would be a perfectly good first-person source of the accident details. Do you have any of those articles that quoted the media statement? Because I'm actually curious now whether they line up with what he says happened in his report. I've got one right here. Can you see what it says? If not, I can pull up the TV coverage. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold whoa, on a second. What? Did you ever find Ichiban? You know, the restaurant he said she left from? Yeah. 
It's right here on Court Street. The confusion is because it relocated later that year, and then last year closed entirely. But it's right here. Perfect. What's happening? Give me, give me a sec. Oh wow. What? Well, if you're asking if if what's missing would change anything, I think I have an answer. When the police gave their statement in the play-by-play -play of the accident, how long did they say it lasted? A minute and 48 seconds. Exactly. And Vosburgh says right after the officer turned on the lights, she sped up to triple digits and spent the rest of the route at or above triple digits. So, if Ichiban was here, then the cop would be around here, making the entire route 1.5 miles. Are you with me? Yeah. So... If his report says that she spent most of that at or above 100 miles per hour, you know, let's just drop it to 100 miles per hour for a quick estimate in time for her to get up to speed, to accelerate. Then, she would have had the accident in 54 seconds, not 108. Yep, you heard that right. In his own supporting memo to his report, the secondhand summary document to which Vosberg actually self-sources the majority of his findings, he explicitly notes the only documents the Watertown police would provide him with were a copy of the media statement they'd made and the initial accident report. But he doesn't actually cite the media statement, even though that's the one with the list of facts and key details about the police encounter in the chase. A side-by-side -side comparison of the details the police released to the media, taken alongside the details reported in Vosberg's memorandum, quickly reveal a potential reason why. For Anna to have traveled at anywhere near the speeds alleged by Vosberg in his report, she would have reached the accident site in half the time the police say the chase took place. And in fact, for the chase to have taken the time recorded and officially reported by the police officers involved, she couldn't have averaged more than 50 miles per hour. Nowhere near the triple-digit speeds alleged by Vosberg is the key support for his argument that she'd acted that night with extreme and willful recklessness, and with total disregard for the safety of herself and others. Tommy had just used high school math and science to blow apart Captain Vosberg's central finding of fact. And he wasn't done yet. Remember, that's an average. For every second she spent above 50, she had to go the same amount of time below. If she got to 100 at any point, she had to spend the equivalent time going zero. Like, she was completely stopped. Like... Stoplight, stop signs. Anything. Slowing down to make a turn, just like normal driving stuff. It actually only got worse from there. Remember Captain Vosberg's claim that Anna made a right onto the bridge at triple digits early on in the chase, forcing one car into oncoming traffic and another onto the shoulder? Well, a quick visit to Google Street View shows a wide bridge with plenty of room for a motorcycle to pass between cars without forcing them to take such drastic and wildly evasive maneuvers and it reveals the bridge has no shoulder. It becomes clear exactly why both Vosberg's appointing memo and the governing army regulation explicitly mandate exhibits to support each finding of fact and require photographs, maps, and detailed information about the terrain and conditions to provide the necessary context for anyone reviewing his report. Without them, the sources of his most central findings, two of which now proven to be questionable at best and outright wrong at worst, and the relative credibility of those sources could not be assessed. And that left Tommy and me wondering, what else could he have gotten wrong? Turns out, more than you could ever imagine.
On one hand, it seemed like every time we read through Captain Vosberg's report that day, we found another disconnect with the established and available facts. And that was before we'd even scratched the surface. The problems were so glaring and so obvious, as in, to accept his conclusions, you literally had to believe in Anna Clark's ability to defy the laws of physics. We couldn't understand how they'd passed the required commander and lawyer reviews at the outset, let alone survived multiple challenges and appeals filed by both military and civilian lawyers on Anna's behalf. Were we missing something? Or was it actually possible the LOD process, as carefully appointed and tightly regulated as it was, could get things this wrong and keep getting them wrong? On CBS this morning, a military family fighting for the truth. A highly decorated Special Forces soldier died in Afghanistan under mysterious circumstances. It didn't take long to find an answer to that question. The first six hours we were down this way, it was uh, contact for six straight hours uh, by way of mortars, IEDs, small arms fire. That's the voice of Sergeant First Class Anthony Vinets, an Army Green Beret who, over a decade of service, was the kind of soldier the Army regularly holds up as an example of its best. Over those 10 years on active duty, including four combat tours, Sergeant Vinets received two Bronze Star Medals, one with Valor, two Purple Hearts, four Army Commendation Medals, two with Valor, and an Army Good Conduct Medal, among many, many other awards and citations. One look at his record, and it wasn't hard to see why. In 2003, Vinets assisted in the capture of deposed Iraqi President Saddam Hussein. And in 2006, the army recognized his efforts helping to pull an Iraqi civilian's cargo truck from a crater caused by a roadside bomb. And later that year, he saved the life of a fellow soldier badly burned in an IED explosion by pulling his body from a canal and helping to carry him to safety. And in 2010, when Sergeant Vinets was deployed to Afghanistan, he was commended for placing effective and accurate fire on the enemy for several days despite being wounded by gunfire himself. Four months later, Sergeant Vinets was found dead. The Army ruled his death accidental due to drug intoxication, a finding that shocked both his fellow soldiers and his family back home. Vinets, famously resistant to take even over-the-counter painkillers, was deployed, actively participating in missions, and had no history of drug use or abuse. Vinets' wife, Debbie, found the situation particularly confusing. What do you think happened that night? What do you think happened to him? I don't know, and that's what I want to know. That determination grew when the Army declared Sergeant Vinets' death not in the line of duty due to his own misconduct. That ruling tarnished his record and deprived his family of military benefits. Debbie appealed the not in the line of duty determination, and a reinvestigation did find a number of mitigating factors and issues of concern. And that gave her hope the decision would be reversed. However, despite the additional findings, including the discovery that key medical records had now gone missing, the Army declined to reverse the decision. Debbie continued gathering information related to her husband's death and began working within the military community to bring attention to her husband's case. She always noted that her quest was about more than lost benefits. For her, this isn't only a battle over benefits. It's also a question of whether her husband's death should erase his distinguished service in life. And Debbie's story does have a happy ending. In 2016, after multiple appeal denials and tireless advocacy by Debbie and those who supported her, 
Sergeant Benetz's file was reviewed, and his not-in-the-line-of-duty determination was reversed by the Army Board for Correction of Military Records. That was almost six years after his death. And just as Debbie, on behalf of her husband, was about to exhaust all of her appeals. So it was possible the Army could get it wrong, and in the face of new, mitigating evidence, continue to back an initial not-in-the-line-of-duty determination. Even for a soldier as decorated as Sergeant Vanette's, and an effort as high-profile, well-lawyered, and well-publicized as Debbie's. Even for them, the appeals process could be hit or miss, and resolution could take as many as six years, if it came at all. And realizing that was pretty depressing. So she's just screwed, to be honest? Kind of. The way these regulations are written, the investigation can be flawed. And tons of new evidence can come to light, but there's no requirement to overturn the decision or even reinvestigate it. The decision to do either is based on whether the mistakes or the new evidence, in the opinion of the person or the people doing the reviewing, would change the final outcome. It creates a strange dynamic, really, because during the investigation, the soldier is presumed to be in the line of duty, and it's the investigator who has to produce a preponderance of evidence that says they aren't. But once the decision's been signed off on, the soldier basically has to prove to a much higher standard that the original decision was wrong, or doesn't get a second look. So the burden's on Anna's family now to prove she's in the line of duty, and not just that Vosberg did a bad investigation. Well, we know that he did that, and we can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. What more do they need? And because he didn't actually do a real investigation, we have no idea what actually happened or if there are any mitigating factors. All we can prove is that she didn't do what he claimed she did. Hmm. Maybe that's the answer. What is? Redoing the investigation. What? All right, hear me out. We have the instructions he was given, and we have the Army regulation. We have all the materials that he included with his report, not that it was much, but we have his memo, and her mother gave us all of the relevant military medical records. Almost everything else he checked or was supposed to was available publicly. I don't know if we can talk to any witnesses, but he didn't either. So that just leaves us without the full police report. And while he's kind of unclear on what he saw or didn't see, New York law says he wasn't supposed to see those anyway, so I don't think that's as big a deal. We can just redo the investigation ourselves and find out if we can get a better sense of what's true. Are you serious? Yeah. It's almost like we're perfectly suited to it. I've got the background as a journalist, and I grew up in the Army. I've got connections, and it's not like this would be our first military investigation. I would think our experience working for President Obama and Secretary Gates on the Fort Hood Shooting Task Force. The Don't Ask, Don't Tell Working Group. And the Military Compensation Retirement Modernization Commission kind of prepared us for this. Okay. I can see that. If you think about it, we're probably more qualified than Vosburg was. So we're really going to do this? Recreate an army investigation with no authority, no sponsorship, no budget, no real staff? Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. And that's exactly what we did. Next time, we try to figure out how hard evidence for as many as three other possibilities conveniently never makes it into the IO's report. But it's the shocking discovery of one terrible truth 
and the fallout that went unaddressed for years that may change how you view almost everyone involved in the Anna Clark case, and possibly the Army itself. Join us next time on Intersections from the Brink with Benjamin Bryant. The Brink with Benjamin Bryant is produced by Tommy Zamberlin and me, but not without the help and support of our amazing team, Rebecca Vega Contreras, Irene Cisneros. Our consulting producer and overall sounding board is Laura Tamayo, and we wouldn't be here without the original BZ cast team, including Daniel Bachman, Beverly George, and Andrea Buckley. A very special thanks to the untold numbers of current and retired military and civilian subject matter experts who provided much-needed background and clarification, including a number of my former colleagues and several members of my own family. Of course, there would be no intersections without the cooperation and contribution of Christopher Nanavella, Adriana George, Delandra Belcher, and Anna Clark. The Brink with Benjamin Bryant is a production of BZMP.